You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. What if young adults received financial education before they graduate on things like saving, budgeting, investing, credit, managing credit, and maybe even buying a home? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today is on a mission to do just that. Yunelli Espinel is a millennial financial educator who started her career as a teacher and now serves as the director of educational outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. She's currently on a political roller coaster ride across the country, convincing lawmakers to make personal finance a high school graduation requirement. And she's here with us on The Real Well Show to share how she's doing it. So excited to be here and reach your Real Wealth members and all of your listeners. I've got so much to talk about today, especially in light of the fact that we just wrapped up Financial Literacy Month not too long ago. Yes, and this has been something we've talked about for years, is why don't kids learn the basics of finance in school, let alone how to invest? Uh, So what are you doing to change that? Yeah. So actually in 2015 is when I created a YouTube channel called Miss Be Helpful. And that was just because I had gone through a personal journey of my own with credit card debt and I have finally paid off my credit cards. And I wanted to just share that with more people. How did I pay off my debt and how did I learn to improve my credit score and save money and begin investing? Um, but I realized that like, even if I was posting on YouTube, that was great for, you know, the folks who found my content, but the next generation of students going through the school system, were not going to learn all the things that I didn't learn. And we're just going to continue to repeat these cycles where there's just this lack of financial knowledge. So I kind of started to research, like, what can we do to actually get this in schools? And um, as a te- I was a teacher. That was like my first job out of college, but I was teaching elementary school. So there really wasn't a lot of, you know, deeper level talk about money. You might teach kids about coins and dollars and things, but nothing too uh, deep level. And so that's when I found out about NGPF. So I actually work full time with a nonprofit organization that has free curriculum, free teacher training, and also has an affiliated organization, Mission 2030 Fund, which has a, a very clear goal, which is to get all 50 states in America to have a required full semester personal finance class by the year 2030. So how have you been able to convince lawmakers uh, that they should require financial literacy in school? Yeah. So, okay. So I actually have a book coming out on May 30th, which is called Mind Your Money. And in the book, I talk a little bit about some of the success that I had in particular in the state of Florida. Um, and, and we also had a lot of success in the state of Michigan. And it's so interesting because once you start talking about convincing lawmakers, now you're kind of in the space of politics and people <laughs> immediately are like, oh boy, it's getting political. Is it a Republican issue or a Democratic issue? What I love about championing financial literacy education in schools is that it's nonpartisan. It's not one party or the other. We literally all agree. We all agree that this is so important that we need to prioritize it in the school system. And the evidence for that, the fact that we all agree, is that the exact same bill passed and was signed by governors in Florida and Michigan. Two very different, you know, political environments, especially when we compare those governors. So I, I, mean, I want to start by saying politically, this is not a hot issue. This is an easy common sense issue. Everyone supports it. But the tricky part when it comes to convincing lawmakers is how it's going to happen. So the actual implementation of a requirement can look very different in every single state, which is where it kind of gets a little bit tricky because 
a lot of states are local control states. They really want education to be left to local schools, to local school districts, to administrators and teachers. So even if it looks a little bit different, you know, the school system is going to reflect what the needs of that immediate student and family population around their school or the district would be, rather than having some blanket policy kind of that just applies to everyone and doesn't really feel customized or personalized for the needs of a specific environment. And I, you know, that is something that we really support. But in order to actually share how can we do this in a way that respects local control, we have to get really creative. So my number one like tool that I always carry with me when I'm talking to lawmakers is that I say we have to do this in a way that is flexible. We have to include flexibility. So one of the recent states that I had success in is the state of Indiana. And there we had a, um, a representative who was thinking about how to sell this in a way that respects local control. And the decision ultimately there was to make sure that the state board is going to be the one to allow the course or decide how the course satisfies high school graduation requirements for their diploma. So it could meet one or more diploma course requirements, meaning it's not going to make it harder for students to graduate. It could either count as an elective semester course, or it can count as a math semester course, or it could count as um, an economics credit. It could count as a family and consumer science class, as a business credit. It really just giving that flexibility is what will make it more likely that um, all students will be able to get the class and will meet their graduation requirements. Um, and so, and that happened in Ohio too, which Ohio was in 2022, but they decided there that it would either be an elective credit or a math credit. Um, and some other states have said it can either be social studies or math or an elective. So when we, when we sell the idea of requiring it, instead of just adding another mandate, what we do is we say, you have to have the maximum flexibility so that every student can take it without being too bogged down to fit it into their course schedule. So what are some of the main items in the curriculum or the, the main topics that you focus on? Yeah, so the core basic uh, topics are going to be banking, budgeting, understanding, managing credit, and also the types of credit that exist. Uh, we'll also cover investing, so understanding the stock market and your retirement accounts and different types of investment accounts that are available to you as a young student who maybe potentially could have a job if you're working, you know, a custodial Roth IRA would be a good thing to consider. So all of that is covered the investing unit. And then there's insurance, taxes, and then there's paying for college, careers, and entrepreneurship. Now, some teachers will say, you know, we only have time for so many of these. So they might pull out the ones that maybe don't apply to everyone. Um, and Or what they'll do is couple some units together. So, for example, entrepreneurship, they'll maybe teach at the same time as paying for college. And they'll say, these are all things that you could do after high school. You could either become an entrepreneur, start your own business, or work for your family business, um, or get a job right away or you could go to college. So the unit kind of becomes like life after high school, as opposed to trying to tell everyone to, to take the same pathway to all go to college. So that's one way that a lot of teachers address that, that unit is combining different options for what your life could look like after high school and teaching them all within one week or a two week unit. And, um, and recently mm. we added some mini units, which I think are really interesting because they're kind of like newer things that a lot of teachers don't cover, but are really important. So um, understanding digital payments, there's a, a cryptocurrency basics mini unit, and we just added buying a house, which is a very high demand topic that a lot of students want to understand. And not a lot of curriculum out there that helps do this in a, in, in a way that's actually unbiased and really helpful and, and empowering for young students to understand, is it realistic for me? Um, to, you know, jump into real estate. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's been left to podcasters like me and and real estate agents putting on seminars to teach how to buy a house. I remember when my friend bought a house when I was in my late 20s and I just thought, oh my gosh, how did you do it? You know, what what's involved? And she sat down and I'm like, ah, oh, this is too much. It's escrow, you know, what is, what is this? It was, it seemed so complicated. Of course, now I look at it like it's the easiest thing. Uh, so I, you know, it, you know, because I know it, but if you don't, yeah, yeah, it seems really scary. And, and we do know that owning real estate is, is one of the biggest reasons why there's a difference between the haves and the have nots, because those who own property have seen, have a much, much higher net worth. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that students have to explore too, because, um, you know, one of the things that we do is instead of just trying to push students in a certain direction, the curriculum at NGPF is very much trying to be unbiased. So it's like, now we're not trying to convince you that you have to do this or you don't have to do this, but instead we want to educate you and then let you make a decision about what you think is best for you, given your financial situation and given your goals. So, um, the first thing, when you open up the very first lesson for buying a house, the very first lesson talks about comparing the advantages and the disadvantages of renting versus owning a home. So rather than trying to tell students and force them to understand, we actually have them do the advantages and disadvantages. What are the pros and cons of each? When I'm renting, am I building any type of equity? Am I an owner? No. When I'm owning, I am building equity. I am an owner. But what are the disadvantages, right? There are many different costs associated that maybe as a renter, I wouldn't have to deal with, you know? So really giving them the ability to do that research, do that comparison, and then make a decision for themselves about which one has a situation where the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because <laughs> I think there's probably a lot of people right now who bought last year who are in regret because yeah. they weren't doing inspections. They, they were just kind of throwing away all the underwriting uh, guidelines and, and buying and paying more for properties than even they would appraise and, for. And not only that, but interest rates are so high. Um, you know, 2022 and 2023 are among some of the highest interest rates that we've seen in, in decades, you know, and I mean, I experienced that myself with my family. Um, my parents um, had the, the ability to get a home in the eighties in New York city, late eighties uh, with my uncle. Um, that was the only way they could afford it is if my uncle and my dad kind of got together and split the house. And when my uncle decided to retire and move to the Dominican Republic, he's like, I'm not going to be in the States anymore. I want to just, you know, cash out my half of the property and just let you all either keep it or we, or we need to sell it. And we both kind of take our piece. But my family was like, we are not ready to let go of our home. You know, this is our home (laughs) for 30 plus years. Like we, we want to, you know, have it. So what my family ended up doing was buying out my uncle. So that required us to sit down and think about, okay, how are we going to do this? If we don't have enough, do we need to refine, do a cash out refinance and pay them for their part? And then we continue, we ended up refinancing and the interest rate that we got was twice the rate that we had before, but because we were in a situation where, you know, we had no other choice. Right. And so I think that sometimes with real estate, like there's so many factors that can be out of your control. And the more you learn and the more you plan and prepare, the better off you'll be to make those choices. So, you know, we made the best decision for us. And we know that as soon as interest rates drop, we need to jump on refinancing and getting a new lower rate. Um, because at the end of the day, like, you know, the interest is really high at above a 5%. I mean, in, in, in early 2023, I heard about people getting mortgage rates that were over 7%. So, you know, these are things to consider. And again, the earlier you start learning this while you're in high school, while you're thinking about what you 
you're going to do for the rest of your life, the better off you're going to be because you're not learning about it as you're trying to do it. You know, like, like they say, like building the boat while you're like steering it, you know, you're, that's the worst way to learn. So the earlier we can put these <laughs> concepts into teenagers' minds, the way better off they're going to be compared to previous generations. Yeah, I don't know if this is in your curriculum, but it's a big problem. Kind of what you were saying is inheritance. So many times the the parents or the elderly don't don't really set it up properly, and there's fighting, and all the money ends up going to attorneys. Right? right. Uh, I've seen it over and over again as we see more and more elderly people dying and and passing on uh, to their family. And like you said, like ah, oh, a functional family can sit around and talk it through, but that's usually, that's rare. Uh, so I, I can't emphasize enough that young people should be in that conversation early and talk to their parents or grandparents so that they're, you know, to avoid that kind of family conflict. I know so many families that do not speak to each other anymore because of the, the lack of proper setup of a trust. And right. yeah, I, I'm experiencing it right now with family. You know, and, and my heart goes out to you because it's not easy. What, what what I have had experience with myself is the combination of trying to deal with the financial implications of the of a death in the family, while at the same time having to try to grieve that death to that person who's now gone. And the worst thing is to try to be doing all of that at the same time. So it's actually a, a, a gift that you can give to yourself when you're young to handle estate planning, to handle those conversations where you ask your parents and your grandparents, you know, what is this going to look like? What if, you know, the worst case scenario happened? How would you want us to handle this? Well, how should we protect these assets? Having those conversations as much as they can be a little uncomfortable and sad even because, you know, you're asking your grandparents or parents to think about death, right? It can be sad. It can be hard to do. But just by doing that, you give yourself the ability to actually grieve the loss of someone when they're gone and just be able to grieve and not have to actually at the same time be trying to deal with the financial anxiety and the financial burden of making these choices of what to do because you've already handled what's going to happen well before it's been planned it's been documented and it's auto and in many cases can be automated too so for me like i learned that lesson the hard way because when my abuelo passed my dad's father passed away we we were just clueless as to what we were supposed to do. We didn't know if he wanted to be buried in the U.S. or in the Dominican Republic. We didn't know, you know, how uh, the funeral costs were, how, where we were going to come up with the money for that. And so all of that, if we would have just talked about it before, you know, and we, it's not, it wasn't like a, a total surprise. My grandpa was in his late eighties. So we should have had that. Right. It <laughs> shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> we weren't that shocked, you know, it was sad, but like we could have talked about that well before yeah. it happened. And and I think that's something that any family, any young person in a family can do is to just say, you know, I hear this story on this podcast and I was you know, paying attention closely. And one of the guests, she said that her family had a, a sudden death in the family and they, they had planned that if they had planned ahead of time, it would have been a lot better. What if we did that for our family? You know, like use, use me. Like, I was listening yeah. to real wealth and this came up, you know, because giving, <laughs> giving yourself an excuse to bring it up with your family can be like the, the motivation that you need, the catalyst to actually create a plan and then give yourself a little bit of peace of mind when something like that does happen. And, and one way to state it uh, is, is I want to be able to honor your wishes and I don't know what they are. That's right. Um, and that day will come and it could come tomorrow for any of us, you know, but, but you have the assets. I don't, <laughs> you know, so, so right. how, uh, you know, I, we want to make sure to honor your wishes. And I, I, we just redid our trust and there were some really good questions on there that weren't on my trust years ago. So I think, um, you know, 
working with a trust attorney or getting those questions in advance uh, is really helpful. It's, it's been thought through, right? Oh, yeah. And I honestly, I never even considered the fact that it's something that you got to redo, too, because, you know, do you do it once and you think, OK, whew, done, done with that. Right? No, it's not if you're acquiring assets. You have to constantly do it. You acquire more <laughs> assets. Things change. New questions come up. So it's actually something that should just be part of your healthy financial planning. And again, like a lot of people don't even learn what is what does financial planning comprise of. So for me, like the passion that I put into financial literacy getting into every public school, it's coming from that place of knowing that we're setting up the next generation to not be clueless, to not have to learn through the school of hard knocks, but instead to actually get to learn it in, in school, right? Especially public schools, which are the original intention of the public school system in the U.S. was to be the great equalizer. So whether you come from wealth or not, you're in the same classroom, you should be able to get equal access to the information that you need to be able to be financially empowered. Absolutely. So do you have any data on financial education that has worked over the past decade? Yes. You know, actually there's so much data and what I, what I, it kind of makes me cringe a little bit whenever I hear people say, well, you know, financial education doesn't actually work because a lot of the research that shows that it, that tries to prove that it does not work was from way back, you know, pre 2010. And it, it's interesting because we've had two recessions since then. You, things have to change when the world changes in terms of instruction in schools. And so, you know, before 2010, there was really not a lot of technology inside of the school system. You know, maybe you had a computer lab and a couple computer stations. But now every student has a device in most schools, whether it's an iPad or a laptop. So the fact mm -hmm. that like most schools are using technology, especially since the pandemic, it, as a, a top tool for learning means that we have to use that and see how we can actually make instruction more effective by leveraging technology. So a lot of data shows that when um, when financial literacy is hands-on and is um, timely, it does work. So there's um, research out of uh, the University of Montana from Dr. Carly Urban, where she's looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of schools and many different students who've taken um, this particular course. And what sh it shows is that when it's just in time, which means that it's at an appropriate grade level, that it, uh, has been proven to be the upper grades, so 11th and 12th grade, uh, that's really when students are doing a lot of the financial decision making that they can actually apply what they're learning. For example, they might have just turned 16 or 17. They want to get their first car. They're going to have to look at car insurance. Right. So now you're teaching them about car insurance when they're actually shopping for car insurance. So that time is just right. Uh, they might also be considering college. And so they might have to fill out a financial aid application like the FAFSA form. They do that junior and senior year, right? So you're teaching them about how to um, compare loans and how to pay for college with as little debt as possible. And boom, they're doing that in their real life. So just in time means you're teaching it and at a point where it's really appropriate for them to put it into practice. Um, and so when it happens in that way, as well as, you know, hands-on and engaging, um, then 10 years after the longitudinal study actually shows that when the students who do get this type of class are compared to students that didn't get it, the students who did get this type of class and this type of education have better credit scores, higher savings rates, lower debt for college, as well as better college uh, borrowing decisions. So instead of taking out private loans that are high interest rate, they exhaust their federal um, loans first with a much lower interest rates before even considering private loans. Where, you know, a lot of people might say that's common sense, but when you look at the group of students that did not get this class, 
a lot of them don't exhaust their federal loan options and they do take on private loans. So they may not, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the best way to approach borrowing for college and they've never been taught. So it makes sense why they might not know how the process works. So they understand the difference between subsidized and unsubsidized uh, loans and they're able to borrow at a much lower rate for college. So they come out with better borrowing decisions, uh, better credit scores, higher savings rates, and a lot less credit card debt. So it, it really is effective. But the caveat is it has to be taught at a just-in-time appropriate level, uh, which you know is proven to be 11th and 12th grade. And it has to be engaging and hands-on. We can't just have a teacher kind of old school, like, you know, chalk and talk. (laughs) This is not the age of PowerPoints anymore. Teachers need to be using engaging technology tools and helping students to actually feel like the way that they're learning is 21st century relevant. Not like we're stuck in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. Like we really have to help students see that now there is so much more online and online based tools and learning and games and simulations and, you know, quizzes that can really help bring the learning to life. Well, how can some of our listeners uh, participate in this mission? I love this question. I'm always trying to convert people every time I meet them to are you, you know, become a financial education advocate, like, you know, join me in my work. So the first thing that I would do is I would say to look up and see if your state is one of the states that already has a full semester of personal finance for graduation or if they don't. Currently, in the beginning of 2023, there are about 18 states, very soon might be 19 with the signing of a new bill that everybody's expecting it to become to be signed into law very soon. Once that's signed, that would be 19 states. So we're still not even at half of the states in the U.S. requiring this for a full semester. So there's a chance that if you live in a state that doesn't require it, that you could get involved in advocating. So uh, first thing is find out, does your state require a full semester course or not? The reason why I want to emphasize full semester is because there are a lot of states where it's required, quote unquote, to be taught or required to be offered, but not as a full semester course. So you might take uh, a business class and then two weeks of that business class will be budgeting and then that will Mm -hmm. count. And it, it, you know, for us at NGPF, the work that we're doing, that doesn't, that to us does not meet the standard. Our standard is a very high standard. We have high expectations, which is a full semester, which means 18 weeks minimum of instruction and nothing but personal financial literacy. So if you're getting 18 weeks of business or 16 weeks of business and two weeks of budgeting, we would not consider that to be a, a full semester of personal finance. So find out if your state has 18 weeks or more of personal finance instruction in a dedicated course. And if not, then you're going to want to find out, has there been a bill that was introduced in any chamber, any side of the chamber, so any uh, side of the aisle, right? If there was a bill introduced, then you could actually reach out to the bill sponsors or the authors of that bill, or you can reach out to your local reps, reach out to folks who are, you are in their constituency and ask them to support that bill. That means voting yes, spreading the word, uh, getting more folks to rally and support. They might have a connection at the uh, Chamber of Commerce that they could reach out to them and say, hey, support this bill. They might be, um, you know, in communication with the Department of Education and they could reach out to them and say, hey, support this bill. We, We essentially, in order to get a bill to move through the political process and actually be signed into law, 
you need every support, like you need every supporter to be part of the movement. You need education leaders to support, parents to support, students to support, teachers, administrators, politicians, lawmakers. I mean, you need everyone to agree on this, that this bill is, you know, is the right bill and to kind of continue to push it forward. So even if it means that you're tweeting or posting on Facebook or LinkedIn, Hey, everyone, you know, for example, in Indiana, there's a bill right now that's super close in early 2023. If I lived in Indiana, I would say, all right, Hoosiers, like everybody pay attention to this bill. It's called SB 35 and it's going to require a standalone semester course of personal finance. It's super close to crossing the line, the finish line. If you know anybody who cares about education is in support of education, share this bill with them. Here's the link. You know, just by doing something like that on social media, it's it's creating momentum. And then by reposting the link, it kind of creates this movement. All right. That like, wow, this is a high interest topic. People care about this bill and this topic. And that <laughs> helps with media attention. That helps with social media SEO and, you know, kind of getting people to recognize that constituents care about this and are keeping their eye on the movement of these types of financial education bills. Love it. Well, Ineli, thank you so much for joining me here on The Real Well Show. It's truly an inspiration to see how brilliant young people are these days. I have hope for the future. (laughs) So much hope. Yes, I definitely hope I've inspired someone out there to become an advocate. Wonderful. I'm sure you have. Well, thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. Of course, you can get plenty of financial education at our website. If you just go to realwealthshow.com, sign up. It's free. We've been educating people for years on how to set up those trusts and how to get asset protection and how to improve your credit and how to build wealth by acquiring assets that cash flow and also appreciate over time. Again, you can go to realwealthshow.com for more information. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.